Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, Google and Alphabet Executive Advisor Marwan Fawaz. He grew up during Lebanon's civil war, where his father was a rare example, an honest cop. Most policemen were highly corrupt and, you know, they lived a much better life. But we, we struggled as young kids. It was much more important than to teach his kids about being honest, ethical, work hard, and, you know, create your own opportunities. The former Nets CEO learned management skills from his mother. Ten of us from the same mother and father, and you know we grew up poor. She has to be incredibly resourceful, yeah. and she has to be you know incredibly disciplined in a lot of things that we do, making sure that you know we're fed, we're closed, and that we're doing the right things. Farwaz started his career as an engineer with Time Mirror Cable, Continental Cable Vision, and Media One. Then as CTO for Charter Communications and Adelphia Communications, Executive Vice President of Motorola Mobility, and CEO of Motorola Home. His most valuable advice for aspiring leaders? I ask for help early on in my career quite a bit from people who are been at it for a while. Be decisive, make a decision based, based on the right information, and then also try to convey that in a personal, compassionate way. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Marwan, uh, thank you for joining us uh, on Cracking the Code uh, as my honored guest. Uh, always a privilege for me to, to spend some time with you, and you've been a great friend over the decades, and, and thank you for uh, being on our show. I am excited to be on this, Satir. It's an incredible uh, journey you've been through. Uh, it's always been fascinating to follow some of some of the great things you've, you've done, and this is a great example of, of giving back and sharing life and leadership experiences with, with generations to come. And I'm sure people are going to see some of the stuff and thank you for what you've done. I'm so happy to be part of it too. Thank you, Marwan. And, uh, you know, uh, with most of our guests, you know, the journey starts very early on for all of us. So give us a, a little flavor, a little bit about what life was like growing up for Marwan Fawaz and mom and dad and where you grew up, siblings. What were some of those uh, unique times growing up that you picked up nuggets of wisdom on as a child? I grew. I was born and raised in Lebanon. I was one of ten siblings. Uh, was I am one of ten simple siblings. Very large family. I left home when I was very young, around 15 years old, in the middle of the civil war in Lebanon. And my parents did their best to keep us all safe. So they've encouraged us to leave and follow our dreams, opportunities, and safety. So it was about survival more than anything else. In my case, I left in 1979 and decided to uh, go join my older brother in West Africa, Liberia. And that's where I finished my high school. So I didn't finish high school in Lebanon. Didn't speak a word of English until I was almost 16 years old. So mostly spoke Lebanese, Arabic, or French growing up. So you can imagine a teenager going into a an expat high school, which was mostly Americans, because America had a huge presence in Liberia and West Africa. 
trying at night to learn English in the day, go to high school, and you barely can get along. So I managed to survive that. And from there, I decided to come to school in the United States. And uh, that was kind of the first part of my journey. Not to interrupt you, but fascinating, actually, to, to hear you talk about, you know, 15 is a very tender age for most young people growing up. And of course, then you grew up in a civil war. Share with us a little bit about what were the impressions for you as you were in the middle of all of that. And of course, you know, a family means a lot to those of us who yeah. come from the East and having to uh, leave mom and dad and then head off to Liberia. It was really tough, but I think your survival instinct takes over because you see at a young age horrible things. Right. You see death, you see destruction, and you try to figure out what does that mean to you as a as a young child or as a young person. So you tend to be rely on family and parents more than so than anything to help you, you survivor. And in a very large family, you got a great support systems. You know there has been a precedent in the family. You know some you know at least half or almost half of the family was already left home, went somewhere else, including the older sibling. I was on, on the younger <laughs> younger siblings, and so you learn you know life lessons much quicker at a young age. You appreciate things. You know you live through a civil war where you're trying to figure out well you can have a meal the next day to eat. And my dad was a policeman back then. One of the things I learned a lot from him, you know, a policeman in a country like Lebanon, it was where there was so much corruption in the police. And my dad was the only guy who was highly ethical. You learn a lot of age. And even though he struggled to support the whole family, where most policemen were highly corrupt and, you know, they lived a much better life. But we, we struggled as young kids. It was much more important for him to teach his kids about being honest, ethical, work hard and, you know, create your own opportunities. And those are really important lessons that, you know, you don't, sometimes you don't get, you don't, as a, even, in the, you know, some, some of the recent generations, you don't appreciate some of those things early on to, to learn those. You don't, you don't, you don't teach, you don't teach that in schools. You have to learn it. You have to experience it and, and go through it. Well, it's, it's very interesting to hear you say that a lot of our friends and our guests on the show have shared some of, you know, early childhood experiences again observing mom and dad for you it was observing your dad being ethical and what I know about Marwan and the years uh, I've had uh, the privilege of being associated with you is you're one of those people who are uh, about as transparent as honest as you can get and you, you try to do right by by people always around you well thank you one of the things and I I didn't want to forget about my mom, who, you know, while my dad was busy as a policeman, my mom had to raise 10 kids and make ends meet in a very tough situation. And while she uh, never went to school, mm. she couldn't write and read. Well, one of the things I learned so much about her, I see it today more than ever, she was an incredible multitasker, incredible manager mm -hmm. in managing time, resources. You don't think about those things, but you learn that. You see how uh, how things that she's done to to manage this very large family. Especially with 10 yeah, this, this is the same... Ten of us from the same mother and father, and you know we grew up poor. She has to be incredibly resourceful, yeah, and she has to be you know incredibly 
disciplined in a lot of things that we do, making sure that, you know, we're fed, we're closed, and that we're doing the right things. And I don't remember any of our, my siblings getting in trouble for doing something, you know, dumb or stupid or trying to get something that others don't have. You know, she's done things that made sure that we appreciated what we have and you're never being wanting something. And you, I look back on that, it's like, wow, I don't, even though I didn't realize it, but thinking about that, you learn from that, you observe it, and you develop those things like, yeah, I got to be resourceful. Yes, I got to manage things. I got to respect what I have and appreciate what I, you know, what I want to try to get to. Yeah, that, uh, that was an important part of early childhood, mm-hmm. seeing both parents do different things and in a partner on those things. Now, obviously, you grew up from a large family. Yeah. What was it like observing some of your siblings? I, you know, as a, as the young, you know, the youngest and the boys, I would, uh, I learned not to do things that, you know, stupid things that they have done. I was, <laughs> I'm highly observant back at that age. And I know when they did something, you know, either one of my parents and likes, like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and it was good to see learning from my siblings, older siblings' mistakes early on in age. And, you know, my parents always said, well, you're, you're the easiest child because we didn't have to. I don't remember ever being disciplined because not because I was such an incredibly balanced child because I learned you see the mistakes that you know your siblings do it's like oh yeah I don't think I'm I want to I want to behave that way or do something uh, you know I focus a lot about trying to learn things yeah. you know whether it's school or real life early on uh, I think that helped me you know later life is you know I'm always learning things well you know so uh, journey obviously went from getting out of civil war into Liberia what was that like in terms of suddenly being thrust into a completely different environment? Language was a challenge and a barrier. Yeah. Uh, friendships, you know, at that age, 15, yeah. 16 years old. No friends. Yeah. I left all my friends. Half of my friends did not survive yeah. the civil war. So, mm. you know, you know, you go into, to me, it was a foreign country and it was Africa. Right. It was a country, it was in transition, actually. When I was there, there was, as luck would have it, when I was there, five months later or six months later, civil war broke, broke into Liberia. I was like, oh, like, you know, how unfortunate that is. I mean, I, I learned, you know, I, one of the things that helped me go into that American expat school, I got to understand American systems, educations, you know, social things, different values early on. So it helped me adjust when I came to the United States much quicker. So there was that transitional period. The history of Liberia was really interesting. Liberia used an American system to create a government. There was a lot of the ex-slaves back in the 1800s went back and created the country. And so it was a different type of, you know, cultures clashing back there. And then I I got got to see, experience some of that. And so you had to make new friends. You had to, you know, reestablish yourself at a young, younger age. And it didn't actually help me a lot where it gives you a courage to go explore things and, you know, meet people because you did that at an earlier age. You know, I don't, I don't mind getting to know people that I don't know. And you tend to be a lot more comfortable with that later in life than because of your early childhood. You, you wanted to right. know people a lot more than uh, you, you wanted that community early on in life than you do now. And then, of course, that brought you in, into your journey and in, uh, into the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I wanted to, <laughs> I mean, early on, I wanted to be an engineer. I didn't know what kind of engineer I wanted to be. So I went to study engineering in school here in that California state in California. And you get to work harder, appreciate things more <laughs> because you're a foreign student and you end up taking it 
advantage of everything that you you see or you're exposed to, whether it's your educations or your teachers or other students. Early on, I wanted to. I was fascinated with communication satellites. I actually wanted to be a satellite engineer, so I studied to be a satellite engineer. Fascinating. And I think it was really back then. It was in the mid late eighties, and at that time, the Strategic Defense Initiative during the Reagan years. It was all about Star Wars kind of satellite communications and how that was important. So it was a lot of money being spent. And I was, you know, fortunate enough, like the California State in Long Beach was in the hub of that. You see a lot of huge Rockwell International, a lot of the big defense contractors, right. and they used to come and recruit. So there's a lot of influence from, from our engineering school. So that was highly influential early on in my engineering education where, and I was really fascinated with, fascinated with satellites. I wanted to work on satellites. I studied satellites. And then I graduated and figured out I cannot go work for satellites because I don't have a, neither citizenship back there, neither the clearance to go work in satellite communications. So what was the closest thing to me that has some satellite to it? Cable TV. <laughs> so I ended up, uh, after graduations, there were work program from the school and I, I met my wife at school. She was also going through studying computer science and we met each other and uh, we've been married now for uh, 32 years. Happily married for 32 years. So it wasn't more about education. It was about starting a, a lasting partnership with my wife. And that was incredible. So, yeah, so I decided I'm going to go park myself in the cable industry for a few years until <laughs> I got my citizenship and clearance, only to know that started, the SDI died, Reagan is gone, the wall came down, the Soviet Union crumbled. There was no SDI anymore. And, <laughs> And the rest of that is I stayed in the cable industry for such a long career. Very fascinating to hear how yeah. you got back in. You, I've never told you this. No, I don't. So this is all new to you, buddy. We met, you know, can, you know, later in life and yes. our careers. You never uh, really talk about how you got. Yeah, it's like we, we never talked about how we got to where we got today. Yes. We just focus on current events. Right. When did you really feel like you were thrust into leadership? Because you're a phenomenal leader and a lot of legacy in the cable industry and now in other industries. But uh, share a little bit of where you had the inclination of wanting to be a leader or jumped into it and you suddenly realized, oh my gosh, there's people that I have to manage. I'd say the first four to five years of my career, I was just uh, an engineer. I'm learning things, building stuff, designing stuff, you know, creating things. And I enjoyed that a lot. But then, you know, when you're successful as an engineer, you know, the first stage is to become a manager, manage people. And I found myself thrust in a leadership position that I was never prepared for. I tell the story to a lot of sometimes my employees, people I mentor. I failed miserably. Absolutely failed miserably. I didn't know how to manage people. I was the youngest. So I was the youngest of the engineer who got promoted, that my peers became my employees or mm -hmm. my team, I should say. And they were like 10, 15 years older than me or 10, 15 years more experienced than me. Mm -hmm. But I became their manager. And I tried to be an engineer, not a manager, as a manager, and really did not work out very well. So I learned hard lessons. I really wanted to, so understood, you know, a couple of years into as an, as an engineer manager, you're not prepared for it. So you start to transition. Like I need to manage my resources. I need to motivate my engineers. Right. I need to make sure that they respect me as a, as a leader well, for them to, to, to listen and follow and to, to perform. You get thrusted into something you're not ready for. And you have to adjust very quickly. And so it took me a while. You know, it was a journey being a leader is at different stages in, in life and, I mean, in, in career. You're never done learning as a leader. 
You're always trying to improve and adjust. And the environments are different every single time throughout my career that you have to adjust to it. Whether it's style, whether it's messages, whether it's motivations, mentorships, strategic thinking, all those things you have to kind of through, go through along the way. And you learn so much so quickly and uh, you, you end up really trying to ask for, uh, for help. How do you become a better better leader. And I, I didn't hesitate. I've, I asked for help early on in my career quite a bit from right. people who are been at it for a while. And that was probably the most valuable leadership advice is people who were there before you. Well, it's, it's fascinating you share that because, you know, we've all gone through this, this learning uh, process. And, you know, during that early learning phase of wanting to be a leader, you know, sharing with the future leaders, what are some of the things that you would say you should not do as a leader? Should not do as a leader. First of all, I, you know, early on in my career, I learned that I should not do my team's job. My role is to to help them do their jobs, not do their jobs for them. So early on in my career, it took me a while to figure that out. You know, engineering sometimes, part of it is more art than it is, you know, specific science. You have to be more creative and innovative. That doesn't mean that way I innovated things that the other engineer is going to innovate the same way. So you you have to adjust around that. I, I learned a lot about how important mentorship is how important to be mentored and how important me to a mentee and a mentor in their different, you know, uh, at different stages and my leadership is to, to become a better leader. You always have to set a goal of things you want know, to improve on while you give back to your team or on, at the same time to help them there. Right. It's fascinating, actually, because, you know, mentorship these days, uh, there's a lot of talk on it. The whole issue of listening and giving and learning is a very important part of it. Did you feel uh, early on that you could pick up in the industry on mentors? The industry was very early in its phase of, of developing new services like we all know today that are commoditized in the world of broadband. But how did you sort of follow that journey of finding mentors and finding people? And what did they uh, teach you? What was the observations you had early on yeah. from being part of that? I usually picked a topic. Yeah, I picked an area where I needed to improve on and I saw somebody out to help me. I would go ask questions about, you know, how to manage financial, how to be financially disciplined and manage a P&L. So I would go in early on in my career and go talk to a VP of finance. So there was this finance person who helped me quite a bit early on when I was almost seven, 10 years in my career out of school. So that was more of an official mentorship around helping understand and, you know, somebody walked me through, you know, what is a P&L, how to manage that. Because the stuff you learn in school as an engineer for financials, it's not, it doesn't prepare you for that. So you, you need to go out and seek that and seek an education and mentorship. Around technology, you know, I followed people remotely and I would seek out to get to meet them. I remember early on, you know, remembering someone like Jim Chirix, who was one of the kind of shining stars of the cable industry. And he was incredible enough that you know, the days of cable labs, I'd go to Jim and ask him questions. Who's never, he's never met me. And, and he didn't, and sometimes I'm, and I go back, you know, now 15, 20 years later, and I see Jim and remind him how he took time to explain things to me. I think that's a form of mentorship. And he, and we were different companies. There was no incentive for him, for him to help somebody. But the only incentive is like this is brotherhood or sisterhood of engineers helping each other. This young engineer asking questions that are different. Why are we doing it this way? I remember during the early fiber deployment, fiber optic deployments in the cable industry. You know, I was early leader for my company that we want to go into that space. And, you know, Jim was the pioneer of that. 
So I remember going talking to him quite a bit, asking him questions, and he took the time. So I set myself my my goal back then. I wanted to be like Jim. I wanted to be a CTO. Right. And I did that early on in my career, and you know, through luck and hard work and circumstances, end up being a CTO. And uh, I reminded Jim of that. So. And so there are several examples along the way. I needed help. You know, I would go to a, our HR lead or people operations lead when there's a when there's you know a conflict, people conflict, whether it's employees to employees, employees to you know outside or you know manager to an employee. You know, those things you don't just you don't just react to them. You have to be thoughtful. Mm-hmm. You have to be considerate. You have to be compassionate. You have to you know create the right you know environment for conversations, and those are important. You know, and I think there was a lot of Businesses are still evolving back then. You know, we're yeah. going through a lot of transition from what it was, you know, 35 years ago <laughs> to what it is today. And, you know, whatever the, the, the topical matter, uh, you know, things that are happening in the business, you kind of try to adjust to that. So search for people to help me in different spaces. And, and I think when I got to, you know, much higher leadership position, it was more natural for me to establish relationship friendship or others to to have a conversations about you know what mentorship is all about you know, you know early on in the cable industry you know i've i mentored a lot of we had a huge defense de- deficiencies in women leadership in the cable industry so i've uh, I, I spent a lot of time and championed that uh, i was a mentor of the year for the women in cable one day one year so and that was something that you know I was I wasn't doing just to get the award. I was doing because it was the right thing to do. You 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 help give back. You use that Sudhir, You use that word a lot. Is how do you give back? How do you create better environments for people and opportunities? You share experiences. Right. You share you know things that you've learned right. to do, and you encourage them to seek out things differently that, that that you have. Talking about leadership, there's a couple more questions obviously that are on my mind, and people who've interacted and spent time with you think the world of you so you started talking early on about you know in your childhood watching your dad about how he managed ethics what are some of the foundational morals and values that marwan thinks about when he thinks about leadership that naturally are sitting in the depth of your heart and your mind that you just lead from your integrity first thing come to mind is integrity you have to be open and transparent you have to make the tough decisions although unpopular you have to make the right decision for the business. You have to make the right decision for the long term. And you have to set the right example of your behavior, what you expect the people to behave the way you do. I mean, it's a cliche, but it, it is. People watch you very closely as a leader. They look up to you. So setting the right example, leading by example, and giving back and being available. And I've, I've done, you know, this is something that's important to me in, in the last three different roles that I've done. It was is accessibility. Mm-hmm. If you, you have to be accessible as a leader to your employees at all levels of the organization. And so that those are, those are some of the key values that I try to impart on my teams, my, from direct reports all the way to all different parts of the organizations. Well, you've uh, had a very successful and illustrious career, and uh, a lot of that is driven, as you know, leaders are expected to execute. So what does execution look like to you? You know, I mean, successful execution of large programs, deployment services, and you've had the ability to do all of that in in now multiple industries, not just cables. So share a little bit your experience of what, 
how you define successful execution and what that really means? The first thing I do on any decision is, do I have all the right, the right data points? And so you see, you can ask quite a bit to get the right data points and also make sure you have different point of views. The next part of it is be decisive. Don't take much longer time in making decisions than what's needed because, I mean, that usually end up being a situation where you procrastinate the business waiting for you to make a decision as a leader. So be decisive, make a decision based based on the right information, and then also try to convey that in a personal, compassionate way. If it's if you're making a tough decision about the size of a team, it has to be done properly. Right. If you're making a tough decisions about whether to to have a project continue as is or stop that project, that impacts people. That impacts the market. So always explain it and be honest about why you're making decisions. And there are many reasons. It could be financial reasons, could be market reasons, could be timing reasons. And that's those are really so Data points, decisiveness, communications, transparencies. Those are really key part of decision and being a leader and making sure people understand why you're making those decisions. That's fantastic. You know, it's actually a very good good base of, uh, of key elements for future leaders to remember, you know, because sometimes we forget that without good data, you can't create and make good decisions. And I emphasize, listen, I've, I've done very unpopular decisions, but they are the right decisions. And I look back, you know, that was the right decisions. And not every decision I made was the right decision, but I mean, the majority of it, because you don't make decisions because you want to please people. You make decisions why it was what's important for the company, the business, the shareholders, public needs, policies, and all those issues really have to be, you have to take that into account. You know, it's a very interesting journey that all of us go through on uh, leadership, but besides having a great academic background, you uh, spent a lot of time looking at many different technologies, deploying them, all of that. Early in the broadband revolution, and I absolutely believe we're going through another revolution here in terms yeah. of uh, the way technology is evolving, services are developing, etc. So, what's your view on how how the world is changing in the use of technology. You've had uh, exposure to so much of it, exposure to great innovators and, uh, and leaders in the world of technology. Give us a broad view, our audience, a broad view of whatever those key technology elements are that are going to change people's lives that you see, that you know, that are going to have lifelong impact in the lives of people and the services that are coming, etc. from yeah. your, your perspective. The first, foremost, Important things when I when you look at technical evolutions, whatever whatever it is, is you have to the foundational part of it is technology is an enabler. Technology is an enabler to to a means to change to improve our lives, to make us a lot more productive, healthier, safer, more visible, better connected. And those enablers are always, you know, key and part of what are you trying to do? And having that mission, trying to do that. I never looked at technology for the sake of because it's a cool technology, honestly, even though I mean, my, my background is an engineer. What are we trying to solve? What are we trying to enable? And then see, when you look at it in so many different ways, from you know, the early days of computing to where we're at today, the early days of communications for where we're at today, and those are things that enable set of you know, advancements. And every time those technologies evolve, they enable something new and different. And you tie that to consumers and the product and the market. How's, how is it ready? You know, you do it. And sometimes, you know, you're ahead of your time and sometimes you're not. And I was fortunate enough in my career 
I spent, you know, years and years observing and spending time with Paul Allen, co-founder of, uh, of Microsoft, the late Paul Allen. We lost him last year, a huge loss and devastating. Paul didn't know this, but Paul was a indirectly a mentor. I learned a lot from him, understanding technology. And Paul's always been an idea guy. In fact, mm-hmm. his biography says the idea man. But Paul always realized what the right timing for those ideas you try to push the envelope, but you always pull back when the idea is not ready. And you saw him make tough decisions in some of these investments, sometimes like whether the idea is ready or not. And, and some was extremely successful, and others he would pull back because the technology hasn't evolved fast enough to support that idea. Mm-hmm. And so for him, it was enabling technology, but the right timing around and making that work. And how do you bring that so, to market? That's some, those are lessons you learn around what, how to use technology and advancements along the way to, to, to deliver something that you know, people want to use and need. Clearly, you know, we've, we've been last couple of decades, there have been crazy evolutions of technology, all for good reasons. We sit here and... Uh, Look at broadband as a commodity. Almost. You know, yes. And uh, there were times when it was actually a privilege, right? Yeah. And uh, it was too expensive to deploy in people's homes. Clearly, uh, the world of artificial intelligence and how it's going to be used in a home related to people's health needs, health care is becoming more important mm-hmm. with the enormous amount of data. Do you see, you know, successful future for for technologies like that to really improve the quality of life of individuals? Where, what's your view on it? Yeah, I mean, obviously there are really practical, very useful reasons for technologies like AI and the advancement. I mean, one of the things, if you research back, I mean, AI is not new. Right. And it's really, we have yeah. been deploying artificial intelligence, you know, from the early day of robotics. That was artificial intelligence that you employed there. So it evolves to something that's compute, gets more powerful, a lot more effective, and the tools behind that. And my current company has done incredible work in this space, you know, from pioneering stuff like TensorFlow and the advancement of that. And, you know, whether you, from something simple like uh, translation, language translation, Google translations. And so, and that's all, that's very useful. When you talk to your phone and you're a, in a foreign country or someone or someone who doesn't speak your language, the phone will translate to you. And I mean, that's intel, artificial intelligence. Right. Taking a language and making a translation of someone else who can understand it. I mean, there's a simple example as that. Or we have having tools from AI to help you read uh, imaging, you know, like imaging related to medical imaging. Well, a lot more effective that could be a lot more accurate. And then a human could read it, or a trained human, or a trained physician could do it. And so I mean, there are hundreds of examples like that you would use, and it will continue to get better, um, but it's getting a lot more sophisticated, a lot more useful, and in some cases could be construed as dangerous. But any technology, you know, from the from the beginning of human discovering fire, you used it to survive and protect yourself, but you also used it to, to do bad things. Right. So there will be people doing bad things with anything we, we create in technology, mm-hmm. from weaponry to artificial intelligence to fire. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really important uh, to educate people on that as much as possible and understand the benefits of that. We have limited resources on this planet. We have limited ability to, to continue to maximize and optimize what we have uh, from people to you know, any other natural resources we have and using intelligence to be a lot more responsible how do we use that. It's really about the survival of our species long term and how do we do that. So using technology to enable that and, and especially stuff like climate change. We are we'll be dealing with that and predicting 
where and how, how do we react to it, and planning it years ahead of time. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, conservations and renewable energy. I'm talking about the reactive part of that and, and, and moving that. I mean, so, you know, we humans use technology for great things, and sometimes we use technologies for not so great things, you know, if we have, you know, bad intentions. And I think the balance of that and, and being in front of that and understanding that and people understanding why it's important to keep moving along as a species to for our survivals and developing and maximizing what we have. And technology is the one way to do it. Now, I appreciate you sharing your insights. You know, they're always very, very fascinating too because I know uh, you, you speak with a lot of passion and your experiences sort of state that, you know, we'll, we'll soon be winding down this, this conversation. But there's a few more questions, obviously, yes. I have for you. All of us look at the mirror at the end of the day. How does Marwan know that uh, he's done okay for the day? And how does your health check happen when you look at yourself in the mirror? Tough question. Tough questions. I mean, the first thing I would look at, like, did I contribute something today? Did I help move things along? Did I help somebody? And it's not just professionally, personally. Did I think about my family? You know, that they try to make sure that, you know, being responsible as a family member, as a parent, did I think about my friends, did I reach out to my friends? And so those, those are the things that, you know, on a daily basis you think about, mm-hmm. you know, when you're winding down. Did I have a useful day? Did I, you know, make a, make something better as much as I can? And even in tough days where, you know, some mistakes are made or things you said and did and people don't like and you, you know, I look at the mirror and try to reflect back. How could I have been done things differently to deal with those situations? You know, so it's really, to me, it's reflections and also being productive. It's, so I should say, reflections and contributions. Those are the things, you know, did I contribute? You know, was I reflective in how to become a better person? It's very, uh, very uh, insightful in the way you shared it. Very different too, you know, and because a lot of us, I think, are not reflective at times because we live in a fast-paced world. Sometimes we don't slow down just just enough to do that. And, and also, I don't do this every day because you get too busy, but, you know, you have to step back. And I was talking to one of the leaders today, mm-hmm. uh, I can't name the person, where she was sharing with me how she was stepping back and reflecting as she, you know, she is contemplating her next move career-wise and you know she she the first important thing she said like wow i i slowed down and i needed to really understand what i wanted to do more first before i just move on to my next to my next opportunity and do the right things and said something was really important like there's two things that was that has to trigger in in, in her situation one is does it trigger the passion is it my passionate and the second is am i make it will i make a difference and those are the two boxes and i said like that's really and and they're simple it's like yeah i i could see that and so whether i do that purposely or not it's like did i trigger something that i'm passionate about and i think i wasn't like that early i would say the first maybe half of my career i was Mm. highly transactional highly transactions i wanted to career move on careerism and develop and uh but i think in the latter latter later the latter part of your career and as a leader you become a lot more like reflective reflective all of us i mean i'm going through that myself it's so much more nicer to be able to reflect and think through what you said what you did and are you having that impact? I think some of it maybe all of us are starting to get gray hair. It is. You know, I, I actually, you know, you, you and I mentioned this like books. Well, love, you know, the recent book that just came out, I highly recommend it. Uh, not because it has a Google angle to it, but it does. 
you know, the trillion-dollar coach, the story of Bill Campbell and the difference he's made here in Silicon Valley, and especially at Google. It was written of by Eric Schmidt and Johnson Rosenberg, both are long-time Googlers. And, uh, you know, Bill, Bill Campbell was this incredible leader, and he imparted, you know, a quality of, you know, real leadership, the visible, you know, compassionate but with, the, with determination and decisiveness and discipline. And so there's a lot of great nuggets in there people would get. And, you know, someone who's advised Google, Apple, and several Silicon Valley companies, unfortunately, we, we lost Bill too early. He passed away you know, a couple of years ago. But his stories apply. He wasn't a Silicon Valley kind of a leader, but he was a great coach. Mm-hmm. And his nickname was Coach. Right. And then, you know, until seeing some of that, it's like, well, I, was, I did a lot of coaching. I did a lot of coaching as a leader. You are a coach most of the time. That's right. And so, so yes, Bill Coach, as he was known, has impacted a lot of people. So that's that's something that, you know, when it comes to leaderships and emulating that. And that's a great book, too, to look for. You actually stole my next question. Was that your next question? Yeah, awesome. You know, yeah, no, it's a, what are some of the books you're reading? Because yeah. I always like our audience to know what our leaders yeah. are reading. Yeah, tri- Trillion Dollar uh, Coach and... Yeah. Uh, it's a story of Bill Campbell. It just, just got published recently. I highly recommend it. Clearly, Marwan, we could go on and there will be future episodes of sure. where Marwan is on. I think we didn't cover, maybe yeah. we covered maybe what, uh, one third of what exactly. you want to cover? Well, maybe my answers were too long. <laughs> no, they're very insightful and experiential. That's what's more important about yeah. this journey. But uh, as we sort of wind down, for our audience, I have one last question for you, Marwan. What would you like uh, people to remember you by? How do you want to be remembered? All of us are slowly aging. <laughs> and yeah. with that, we, as we talked about earlier, we become more reflective in our thinking and deliberate in our actions sometimes what we really want to do. So what is that legacy and what do you want people to remember? Yeah, I mean, we talked about, you know, some of the things that I can abide by and in my style, you know, one of the, what, what's really important to me as a person, not just as a leader, was I helpful? Did I help? It's that simple. Did I help somebody? Did I help a group, a company, an investor, a friend, even my family? Was I helpful? And I think, you know, as, as humans, we, we need to rely on each other and being helpful to continue to advance as a society and as individual people. If there's one thing I know about... Uh about you and the time I've had the privilege of knowing you is you are always extremely gracious with your time, your advice, and your practical help when asked. So for me, that's that so is you, so you've, yeah. been, you've been an incredible role model, incredible friend. The years we've known each other, I've learned a lot from you. You know, your grace, your thoughtfulness. It's something that you, have, whether you see it or not, you've imparted that on a lot of people. So I'm lucky to be your friend. Well, same here. And part of this, this whole series is all about uh, giving back to the next generation of leaders. As you know, the world of digital keeps this podcast forever way beyond yours and my life. It's digital now. It's, yes. It's permanent. Yes. It so. is permanent. It's a, it's a great. Uh, I'm glad you're doing this. I think life lessons, work lessons are so important in any in any environment. And this will be one of many. As you know, we're working through our values-based leadership yeah. series book that you're contributing to, which will come in yeah. 2020. I'm looking forward so to that. I'm absolutely excited about that and excited about all of you and your life lessons that you're sharing. So thank you again for joining us, Marwan, on Cracking the Code with Sudhir Spani. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sudhir. All the best.
Sudhir, through this Cracking the Code series, you've identified a remarkable pattern of success that many of your guests fit in. Something big, often tragic, happened in their childhoods that set them on a path. And early role models of integrity and strength showed them how to overcome it and grow into a leader. Marwan Fawaz was raised in the middle of a civil war. Many of his friends didn't survive. His father was a rare example of honesty, a police officer who did not thrive off of corruption, but who thought it was better to be an example of integrity to his 10 children. And he watched his mother manage that large family amidst all the chaos, feeding and nurturing those 10 children with limited resources. And as one of the younger children, Farwaz learned from his older siblings and his parents. He also reinforced another important lesson for aspiring leaders. Seek out mentors. Even if you're not working in the same company, ask them questions. Learn important skills that expand your possibilities of success. And later, share your knowledge by mentoring others. Marwan Fawaz, another great example of someone cracking the code. <laughs> 